We're in Jeremiah chapter 32 today. So Jeremiah chapter 32. I'm reading out of the House Bibles right in front of you, and so I'd love for you to follow along. You can turn to page 700. It's page 700 in our House Bibles, Jeremiah chapter 32. We're using the CSB translation today. And before we begin, I'd like to take just a moment to prepare ourselves in prayer. Well, let's bow our heads and let's pray to the Lord. Father God, we have gathered today to devote our time to hearing from You, to hearing from Your Word, and I pray that You would teach us today because we want to know You better. We want to worship You better. Where there are places in our life where we need to change, bring us conviction today so that we can change. Call us out where we need to be called out, and we'll receive it as a gift from you so that we can follow you better. Encourage us where we need encouragement, but in all ways and in all things, speak to us today. Our joy is in hearing your word. This I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, I went to college in Arkansas, of all places. And uh, yeah, I know, right? And I, I picked up, a, as it turned out, I picked up an English literature degree, which makes it all the stranger that I went to Arkansas to learn about English, uh, I say. But there are a lot of colorful stories that came out of Arkansas in my time there in college. And one is of the phenomena of the Walmart stock boy millionaire. You know about these people, these stories? They were all around in Arkansas since Walmart started in northwest Arkansas with its first stores. Well, on October 1st, 1970, still a small operation, but October 1st, 1970, Walmart went public, and they provided with great publicity to all their employees there in Arkansas uh, certain stock benefits that they could buy in to these stock benefits. And it turns out when it went public for $16.50 a share, it's 1970 money, so it's still expensive shares, but there were a lot of guys who worked in stock, uh, men and women who worked registers, who just worked there at the store, who with every last little penny they had, they bought in on the stock of this operation because they believed in it. And so it turns out if you had spent a grand, $1,000, on those stocks at the time, since then, uh, Walmart stock has split two to one 11 different times, so you would now be up to 204,000 shares, just about 205,000 shares. And uh, the stock today would be worth uh, $26.5 million is what you'd be up to. So if you put in, what? $1,650 then, but this is 52 years now. Uh, the thing is, it didn't take all this time for it to get that expensive. When I was going to college there, now coming up on what feels like 20 years ago, uh, that was already, it already happened. In the 90s is when Walmart stock skyrocketed and then it stayed high. So you had these people, just good people from Northwest Arkansas, 
but who saw the deal and bought the stock benefits, who they believed in something and they bought into it, and then they retired after being bag boys, uh, they retired millionaires. It's a, it's a wild ride. It's a wild story. Have you ever seen somebody surprisingly invest in something and then it paid off in incredible ways? Have you ever seen somebody make a bet on a piece of land or on a business or on an idea that you thought was awfully ill-advised, but it turned out great for them? That is exactly what happens in our Scripture passage today, believe it or not, where God introduces Jeremiah to a real estate proposition, a field that he wants Jeremiah to buy against all wisdom, against all of Jeremiah's better judgment, God sends Jeremiah out to buy a field. Let's start reading in Jeremiah chapter 21. We're going to hear about this one. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of the king Zedekiah of Judah, which is the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now at the time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. The prophet Jeremiah was imprisoned in the guard's courtyard in the palace of the king of Judah. King Zedekiah of Judah had imprisoned him, saying, Why are you prophesying as you do? You say, this is what the Lord says, look, I am about to hand this city over to Babylon's king, and he will capture it. King Zedekiah of Judah will not escape from the Chaldeans. Indeed, he will certainly be handed over to Babylon's king. They will speak face to face. They will meet eye to eye. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, where he will stay until I attend to him. This is the Lord's declaration. For you will fight the Chaldeans, but you will not succeed." This is the story, the situation. The last king of Judah here, Zedekiah, is, uh, is currently there. The Babylonian forces in the 18th year of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, when you see the words Chaldean and Babylon, those mean the same things in this context. The armies are surrounding Jerusalem and laying siege to it. They're shooting rocks at the walls. The siege ramps are coming up against it. There's, there's nobody living in the countrysides anymore. They've all been taken over. All there is left is the stronghold of Jerusalem. And inside the stronghold of Jerusalem, the last piece of Israel to remain standing, there is the prophet Jeremiah, who has been telling the people of Jerusalem, this is God's judgment against you. And if you will stop fighting them and go along peacefully with the Babylonians, they're going to take you off into slavery, but God will prosper you in Babylon. However, if you resist God's judgment against you, then it's going to be all the worse for you and things are going to go terribly. He says to them, even in God's judgment of Jerusalem, He's going to provide for them and take care of them and help them to thrive. You see this come true with Daniel, who's in exile in Babylon, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, with Esther, with, with all of the Israelites who are out there in Babylon. God is with them and provides for them, even though they're out of the land. And so here Jeremiah is. He's been taken captive by not the king of Babylon. He's been taken captive by the king of Jerusalem and put in the courtyard of the police station, essentially, to tell him, quit prophesying against us. The king is trying to fight against Babylon. The king's trying to make allies with the Philistines and all these evil nations around them. The king's trying to make allies with Egypt, which God said don't do. 
He's trying to do everything that he can to keep Jerusalem, which is against what God's called him to do. And he keeps saying to Jeremiah, stop it. You stop prophesying against me. This is what I'm the king and this is what I need to do. That's Jeremiah's situation. He is in jail in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is surrounded by the enemies. And in the middle of the situation, he has a prophecy for Zedekiah. And the prophecy is, oh, Zedekiah, you're not going to escape this. In fact, you're going to go meet that King Nebuchadnezzar face to face, not his peers. <laughs> He's going to conquer all your land and your city, and you're going to serve him, and God is going to take care of things from there. Well, that's the situation. And here Jeremiah gets another prophecy from God. Verse 6, Jeremiah replied, he replies to King Zedekiah, the word of the Lord came to me, watch, Hanamel, the son of your uncle Shalom, is coming to you to say, buy my field and Anatoth for yourself, for your own right of redemption to buy it. Then, the Lord, then as the Lord said, my cousin Hanamel came to the guard's courtyard and urged me, please buy my field and Anatoth in the land of Benjamin, for you own the right of inheritance and of redemption. Buy it yourself. Then I knew this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field in Anatoth for my cousin Hanamel. I weighed out silver to him, 17 shekels of silver. I recorded it on the scroll, I sealed it, I called in a witness, I weighed out the silver on the scales, I took the purchase agreement, I sealed the copy with the terms and the conditions and the open copy, and I gave the purchase agreement to Baruch, son of Neria, son of uh, Messiah. And I said this, I did this in the sight of my cousin Hanamel, the witness who had signed the purchase agreement, and all the Judeans sitting in the guards' courtyard. I charged Baruch in their sight. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says Take the scroll, the purchase agreement with the sealed copy, and this open copy, and put them in earthen storage jars so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. It's a wild little story here. Remember, Jeremiah is in prison. The nation of Jerusalem is at the moment just, or the nation of Israel is at the moment just Jerusalem. So his hometown, Anatoth, this small village in the tribe of Benjamin, already taken over by the Babylonians, when his cousin comes up to him and says, hey, you should buy a field from me out there in the occupied land of the Babylonians. Do you have some silver? Because, you know, you should buy some land from me. You understand this right of redemption. The land was supposed to stay within the families. It didn't always, but it was supposed to stay within members of the tribe of Benjamin if it was the land given to the tribe of Benjamin. So this cousin of his probably went to all sorts of other cousins and people and uncles who had the right to buy this land first, and every last one of them said, are you crazy? Are you crazy? Are you crazy? Absolutely not. The money, the silver, that's worth something. Land is worth nothing because it's all owned by Babylon right now. It's useless. It's just a piece of paper. You can't even walk out to check out the field because you can't leave the siege of Jerusalem right now. This is the worst investment opportunity of all time. But God tells Jeremiah, hey, by the way, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to send your cousin to you, and you should buy that piece of land from him. And then it happens. And Jeremiah says, all right, I bought the piece of land, 
And everybody there in the courtyard and everybody around him sees this and says, we've seen Jeremiah do weird stuff before. He says, we saw Jeremiah with all these strange prophetic messages. We saw Jeremiah do all sorts of crazy things as object lessons and illustrations, but this has to be the craziest. You know, we've been talking, we've been talking over the last few months about all these wild illustrations and object lessons that God gives Jeremiah to share with the people, whether it's the bad figs or siege instruments. There's all sorts of things, the soiled underwear, these illustrations in the book of Jeremiah that are a little strange, but that God gives to explain what He is going to do to Israel. Unfortunately, all the illustrations are against Israel until you get to this one. One last truth, one last object lesson, and it's a great blessing. Everybody is staring around at crazy old Jeremiah buying a piece of land he can't even walk out to any longer because the enemy has already taken over this particular field. He weighs out an enormous weight of silver for this land and gives away the good silver. And they go through the, all the steps. They make a copy of the transaction. They make a, a normal receipt. They seal one up. He keeps one open. But then what he says to his secretary, Baruch, is this. You're going to go and take both of them and put them in an earthenware jar, something that will keep them and preserve them, because it's going to be a long time, but that land will absolutely be mine, is what Jeremiah says. God's made a promise, and the promise to the house of Israel, even as the enemy is up against the final gates of the capital city, is this. Houses, fields, and vineyard will again be bought and traded in the land. Even as judgment is coming down, God is already explaining to them how He is going to save them and restore them. He says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, you can bet on me. If you're going to invest, invest on my word. Whatever you have, put it into what I'm saying. And God says this, Jeremiah, I want you to buy a piece of land you're never going to set foot in. But the descendants of the tribe of Benjamin, they'll set foot in it again. They will possess the land again, just as I have promised them. What do you say to this if you're Jeremiah? What would you respond to God in this situation? Here's what Jeremiah says. Verse 16, after I'd given the purchase agreement to Baruch, son of Nera, I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, you yourself made the heavens and the earth by your great power and with your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. You show faithful love to thousands, but you lay the Father's iniquity on their son's lap after them. Great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of armies the one great in counsel and powerful in action. Your eyes are on all the ways of the children of men in order to reward each person according to his ways and as a result of his actions. You perform signs and wonder in the land of Egypt, and you still do it today, both in Israel and among all mankind. You made a name for yourself, as is the case today. You brought your people Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror. You gave them this land you swore to give their ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. They entered it and they possessed it, but they did not obey you or live according to your instructions. They failed to perform all you commanded them to do. 
so you have brought all this disaster on them. Look, the siege ramps have come up against the city to capture it. The city, as a result of the sword and famine and plague, has been handed over to the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you have spoken has happened. Look, you can see it. Yet you, Lord God, have said to me, purchase the field and call in witnesses, even though the city has been handed over to the Chaldeans. This is Jeremiah's prayer. It's a powerful prayer, is it not? He begins by declaring, he begins, Jeremiah begins with the beginning. He says, O Lord God, you who are the one who created the heavens and the earth with your outstretched arm and your great power. He declares what he knows about this God. Nothing is too difficult for you. He goes on to talk about how God has been making this name for himself and revealing himself to all humanity. Do you understand that human history is really the story of God revealing who he is, progressively showing more of himself to Israel, but as Jeremiah prays here very specifically, not just to Israel, but to all the nations, to all mankind, Jeremiah says here. You have been declaring that you are the real God. They made up a bunch of gods, but there's a real one named Yahweh, and you have been demonstrating this time and time again, over and over again. You demonstrate that you are the real God. You did it in Egypt. And it wasn't just the Israelites who knew that there was a real God with the Israelites in Egypt. It was all the Egyptians as well. And all the other nations, everybody knew about what happened in Egypt and that it was the God at work. And Jeremiah knows, and you know what? You brought them into the land you promised and they failed. We all failed you. We were terrible. And then Jeremiah says, but verse 25, yet now you've asked me to buy a field, even though the city has been handed over to the Chaldeans? Jeremiah is faithful. He has already done what God called him to do. He bought the field. But then he prays to God, this powerful prayer, declaring he knows exactly who God is and how powerful he is. But he also says, but what gives? <laughs> Why did I just buy this field? This doesn't make any sense. Jeremiah he sees his shackles. Jeremiah sees the fact that he is in chains here, and he sees the siege ramps coming up to the walls of the city so that it can overflow and the walls can spill over with enemy soldiers. And he says, you're this great God who can do anything, and you're having me buy a field. You're to understand Jeremiah's faith is the faith of Mary, who doesn't disbelieve God when the angel comes to her and says, you're going to be with child, and this is the power of God. She believes, but she says, I, I believe, but how now? What, what now? She, 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 she says believingly, uh, but she asks for some further enlightenment, and Jeremiah does the same. He's already obeyed the Lord. He knows who God is, but then he says, what, what is going on that I'm buying a field right now? And Jeremiah gets a response from God. Here's the response that God gives him. Verse 26, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Look, I am the Lord, the God over every creature. Is anything too difficult for me? You go back and read verse 17. Jeremiah says, nothing is too difficult for you. And then God throws the words right back at him. Remember that time just a few moments ago, Jeremiah, when you prayed and said nothing was too difficult for me? Well, now I, God, am here to tell you it's true. Nothing is too difficult for me, Jeremiah. Look, I am the Lord. The God over every creature is anything too difficult for me. 
Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I am about to hand the city over to the Chaldeans, to Babylon's king, Nebuchadnezzar, and he will capture it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against the city, they will come and they will set the city on fire. They will burn it, including the houses where incense has been burned to Baal. On the rooftops where they drank offerings, where their drink offerings were poured out to other gods to anger me. From their youth, the Israelites and Judeans have done nothing but what is evil in my sight. They have done nothing but anger me by the works of their hand. This is the Lord's declaration. This city has caused my wrath and my fury from the day it was built until now. I will therefore remove it from my presence because of all the evil the Israelites and the Judeans have done to anger me. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem. They've turned their back to me, not their faces. Though I taught them time and time again, they do not listen, they do not receive discipline. They have placed their abhorrent things in the house that bears my name, and they have defiled it, and they have built high places of Baal and Ben-Hinnom Valley to sacrifice their sons and their daughters in the fire to Moloch, something I have commanded, something I have not commanded. I have never entertained the thought that they do this detestable acts causing Judah to sin." God spells it out once more, finally, completely, clearly. You have asked, is God a little harsh in His judgment? You have asked this question, was God harsh in His judgment when He sent the Israelites to destroy the Philistines, all of them, every last one of them? You have asked, and Israel asks, is God being a little too harsh in sending His judgment? And God has answered, no. Because if you take a clear survey, if you look with, you know, not, not rose-colored glasses, if you don't look at yourself judging yourself to be, well, you know, I, I did a couple things wrong, but I'm all right. But if you, if you look with the eyes of God who sees everything and everything that happens and can declare very clearly the sin that they're doing, the way they're worshiping these detestable gods, the way they're worshiping them angrily, sometimes just worshiping the other gods to spite the one true God, as if they go to God in prayer only to yell at Him for how He's ruined their lives, and finally they go down to the valley to worship Moloch, the way you worship Moloch. Baal, Moloch, these are gods of the Philistines and gods of the neighbor nations. And did you hear what I said in here? How, did you hear what I read? How do you worship the god Moloch? You sacrifice children to him. And the Israelites were taking children and sacrificing children on the altars to these other gods. These things are detestable before God, and you know it as well. But this is not the end of what God says to Jeremiah. God continues, verse 36, Now therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to this city about which you said, it has been handed over to Babylon's king through sword and famine and plague. Here's what God says, verse 37, I will certainly gather them from all the lands where I have banished them in my anger, my rage, and my intense wrath. I will return them to this place, and I will make them live safely in it. 
They will be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them integrity of heart and action, so they will fear me always for their good and for the good of their descendants after them. I will make a permanent covenant with them. I will never turn away from doing good to them. I will put fear of me in their hearts, so they will never again turn away from me. I will take delight in them to do what is good for them, and with all my heart and mind, I will faithfully plant them in this land. I have only good news for you today. If you are a person like Israel who hears the word of the Lord and it is against you, if you should have known better in your life and yet you have done worse, the sins of Israel, as we read them here today, are detestable and embarrassing to read out loud. If it's the case in your life as well, that you know the shame of the sin in your life and all that you have done wrong, you don't need somebody else to read the list out loud for you because you know the things that you have done. Well, I have great news for you today. The God who will judge you and everything that you've done is a God who desires to see good for you. The one true God who will judge the living and the dead and everything in it, His desire for your life is not that you should pay for your own sins. His desire is that He would be the one who pays for your sins for you. Amen. This God is good. Judah has done great evil, and so God is punishing them rightly. But even if they were to go along with His punishment for them, He would still provide for them and take care of them even when they're off in judgment in exile. And God's last object illustration with Jeremiah is a huge blessing. God says to Jeremiah, hey, go buy a field, and you're going to need to seal up the scroll in one of those jars where it won't rot. Same kind of jars that the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in thousands of years after they were written. Seal it up in one of those jars is what he says, because it's going to take a while, but the land will be bought and sold again by the tribe of Benjamin, by all the Israelites. It will be bought and sold because God keeps His promises even when they don't. And the final condition of Israel is going to be better than the first condition was. It's not just that they get the land back, but they get a whole new covenant. It's not just that they're going to come back to the land, but He says, I'll be their God, they will be my people. Verse 39, I will give them integrity of heart and action. This means their hearts are going to be made right finally. And their actions are going to reflect what's in their heart, and their heart will reflect their actions. It will all be one together. They will be a good people. Verse 40, I will make a permanent covenant with them. A covenant unbreakable, covenant unretractable, a covenant that will never go away. And I will never turn away from doing good to them. I will put fear of me in their hearts, so they will never again turn away from me. And this is perhaps the most beautiful verse here, verse 41. I will take delight in them to do what is good for them, and with all my heart and mind, I will faithfully plant them in the land. These same words are used in Deuteronomy when God calls the people of Israel and says, Hear, O Israel, 
the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, this is God saying, I will love my people and try to do good for them with all my heart and mind. I will plant them in the land. I tell you, this is the same God and this covenant that he has made in Christ's blood is a covenant not just for Israel, but for all people who would hear it. You go back and remember in this chapter, we had to read a lot today, but you go back and remember this chapter, Jeremiah talked about how God was always making a name for himself amongst all mankind, amongst all people. Christ was never just for one nation, but for all nations, and he used Israel as his special nation to demonstrate this to all people, then he offered a covenant to everyone. The land promises are just for Israel, to God for fulfill, to fulfill for them, but all the rest of the promises belong to all of us, to every last one who is included in this new covenant where God's desire is to redeem us and to bring us into relationship with Him. So, what should you do today, given this great news that we sinners have, that this is the will of God? What God wants for us is that we should know His goodness. You know what delights God today? To bring us into restoration with Him and relationship with Him. So, given this great news about how bad we've been, but how great God is, what should we do today? First, don't allow the busyness or challenges of today to keep you from seeing what God is doing in the future. This is Jeremiah's problem here. All Jeremiah sees are the shackles. All Jeremiah sees are the siege ramps. And Jeremiah goes, why am I buying this field? And until God explains it to him, he doesn't understand the full goodness of it. It's because Jeremiah's people, his tribe, is going to get to keep that field forever. That's why he's investing, though he's going to invest in something he himself will never see. Yet God will still be faithful to his covenant. You and I can do the same. We can allow the shackles, the siege ramps, whatever busyness is going on in our life, whatever challenges are happening today, I mean, we can let them distract us from focusing on what God has promised to us, that he is going to make everything right. There is no wrong that God is not going to make right when Christ returns. Neither is there any delay with Christ except that He is patiently waiting on you to put your trust in Him so that He will return and make these things right. Such is God's love for you that He has waited yet another day to give you an opportunity to receive the blessing of knowing Him. Don't allow whatever is going on in your life to distract you from this. I say at most funerals, most funerals, if you've been here at Talatha long enough, you'll hear me officiate a funeral. And I say at most, preach a funeral, let's say. And I say at most funerals, I say this dear friend of ours, let's say Jess, Jess now has an eternal perspective that we don't share. You and I, we see day to day. You and I, we've got a to-do list. You know what you're doing. What do you, what do you got going on today? What else is happening later on? Got to get ready for the kids going off to children's camp. You know, got to get a few things done. Got to make some plans, taking care of the other kids for the rest of the week. A little polish for my sermon for tonight. You know, I'm going to preach again. I've got a to-do list. And I'll go from task to task to task for the rest of the day. And we live like this as well. 
Jeremiah was living like this, but let us not allow the to-do list, the busyness, the distractions, even the challenges or suffering to distract us from the fact that it is God who is primarily working in our life and in the lives of people around us, and He is steering us towards Him. Jeremiah looks down at the shackles and he says, what am I doing here, God? Why is this difficult? And yet, likewise, Jeremiah is not to forget that God is leading all of this towards something. So what is it for you today? Is it challenges? Are there difficulties in your life? Is it suffering? Maybe it's just busyness. Don't be distracted, but push all of these things out of the way so that you can remember this God was working on your behalf since before you were born, and He is steering your path now. He is working out all things towards good for those He loves. Look past the distractions of the moment to how God has provided for you and blessed you and is preparing you for something even greater in following Him. Don't allow busyness or challenges to distract you from God and the future that He has. Second, we trust God as God, not as a peer. You know, in a, in a relationship between peers, perhaps in a, in a business relationship between peers, let's say you're working with somebody else, uh, you usually don't pay a person until all of the work is done, right? It's, it's, it's ill-advised. Even if you're like siblings, it's ill-advised to make full payment uh, until somebody else has completed the contract that they have with you, even if it's a verbal one. You, you wait till they get the work done, all the work done, your, your peers. You, Ronald Reagan used the phrase, trust but Trust, but verify. You know, we trust, but we verify what everybody else is doing. I believe you. Let me go take a look and see and make sure. Okay, we're done. Good. I'll pay up. This is not the way it works with God. We don't go to God and trust Him as we trust a peer. We go to God and trust Him with everything we have in all of our lives. This isn't pay upon delivery. This is offer your entire life to Him now because of what He has promised. If you offer your whole life to Christ, if you hand over control in your life, which you never really had, and if you hand over your future, which you never really had control of, and you know today, friends, there will come a day when you die, yes? And you have no control over this either, but if you hand over your life, your control, and your future God has promised that He forgives, that He will purify you, that He will give you the Holy Spirit even now, and that the Spirit will bear fruit in your life, that you will live in the joy and the peace of the Lord even in the most difficult circumstances. And He's promised even more that you will have eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I mean, what holds you back? Offer everything, finding out that what you have is nothing, but offer everything anyway to Him and receive everything that He wants to provide you with. Next, invest in the kingdom. Buy the field. There are all kinds of investments you can have in life. Make wise ones. By all means, God bless you. Invest well. Get great returns. I wish well for you and prosperity. I hope all the best to you. I'm telling you, the real place to invest is in Christ, in the Lord, in the kingdom, in His work that He is doing. 
What do you have now? Buy a field of the Lord. Invest in things that you'll never see come to fruition for yourself, but you will see be a blessing on others and generations that come after you. Invest in the kingdom. You will have an excellent return. And in conclusion, I just want you to listen to the promise of God and realize that the promise of God is not just for Israel here, but it is for you as well. The land promise fulfilled just for them. But the love of God for all people, this new covenant, is for everyone. So listen to these promises and know that they are for you. God says, I will certainly gather them from all the lands where I have banished them. I will return them to this place and I will make them live in safety. They will be my people. I will be their God. I will give them integrity of heart and action so they will fear me always for their good and for the good of their descendants after them. I will make a permanent covenant with them. I will never turn away from doing good to them. I will put fear of me in their hearts so they will never again turn away from me. And I will take delight in them to do what is good for them. And with all my heart and mind, I will faithfully plant them in this land. This is God's desire for your life as well. Come and rejoice with us today at this God who is good and who enjoys giving good, who wants to give it and who gives it freely. Come today, friends, by the field. Offer your entire life to Christ today and learn how great it is to trust Jesus Christ as Lord. Father God, I thank you that you are so gracious to us and so patient with us. I thank you. I thank you that even your judgment is just a background for your grace. Even your judgment shows us how much you love us. And I thank you that you've been so patient with us. Help us to trust you like Jeremiah trusted you. Help us to trust you completely and wholly in the most dire circumstances because we know that everybody who trusts in the Lord is never put to shame. Father God, we thank you that you're so good. This I pray in Jesus' name, amen.